Welcome to the Bayside Sermon Series Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Duckworth, Media and Technical Director here at Bayside. This week, we are discussing with Pastor Dave Ritter and finishing up our sermon series on the songs of Easter. This week, it is the Victorious Servant. Thank you for being a part of our discussion. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, This week, uh, as we are ending our series on the songs of Easter, the victorious servant, Pastor Dave, as we end this this section of Isaiah, is there anything you found particularly new or profound in your study uh, that you hadn't noticed before? Yeah, actually, what I found really pretty amazing was the straightforward connection between Paul's definition of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 and what Isaiah lays out as a prediction of Messiah's life and ministry 700 years in advance here in Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 12. Uh, 7 through 12 is, is the uh, kind of the climax of the whole uh, Servant Songs series, and it's the last half of the fourth Servant Song. And uh, it, it just occurred to me that you know, Paul lays out basically a three-part structure for the gospel. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And there are there are various places where you'll find reference to the Messiah being raised from the dead in the Old Testament by way of prophecy. Uh, Psalm 16, Psalm 110. Uh, you'll find places that have clear reference to the Messiah dying for sin, and that includes uh, several of the servant songs we've already looked at. But there's only one place in all the scripture where it puts together the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah, and that's in Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 12. So Paul says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, and Isaiah clearly says that uh, that the servant would be cut off from the land of the living, uh, stricken for the transgression of my people. He died for our sin, uh, Isaiah said, uh, by way of prof- prophetic uh, prediction. Uh, and then he was buried. Well, as far as Old Testament prophecies of the work of the Christ are concerned, this is the only place I can think of where it says uh, anything about his burial. And Isaiah is very uh, straightforward about that. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Um, you know, it doesn't matter where you're buried. If you're, if you're buried in a cemetery anywhere, you're being buried with the wicked because <laughs> uh, the whole cemetery is full of people who have sinned. Uh, but the, the unique thing here is that he, with the rich man in his death, and, you know, what does the gospel record say? Well, a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, came and claimed the body of Jesus and laid it in his own stone tomb that he had cut out of the rock, uh, the tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Um, so he was crucified. He, he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, and then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And what does Isaiah say? But, yeah, uh, Okay, he's going to make his life, his soul uh, offering, uh, his soul is going to be offered as a offering for guilt, as a 
as an atonement for our sin. And right after that, it says that he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He shall, um, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So uh, Isaiah is very clearly indicating that this Messiah is not going to stay dead. Uh, He's going to offer his life as a guilt offering, but he's still going to see his offspring. He's still going to live forevermore. He is going to fulfill the will of the Lord. And all that is completely in accord with with New Testament teaching, isn't it? That that, uh, Jesus died, but then rose again. And does he have offspring? Oh boy, does he have offspring. He has millions and millions and millions of us who've been redeemed by his blood, who've been brought from death to life because of his work. Um, Prolong his days? Yep. Uh, Not only raised from the dead, but ascended to heaven. Uh, Never to die again. And uh, is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Um, As the last line of, of the servant song says, he makes intercession for the transgressors. And there's Jesus interceding for us before the throne of God, pleading our our righteousness uh, before the Father. Um, and and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Well, you know, through the, the commission of the resurrected Christ and the empowering of his believers by the Holy Spirit, uh, that work continues to this very day. The will of the Lord for the salvation of mankind continues to be carried out through the work of the church. So uh, to me, that was the most amazing discovery in looking at Isaiah 53, was seeing it through the lens of Paul and, and realizing that, oh, this has got to be the passage that Paul is referring to when he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And this is the gospel I, I'm passing on to you, the gospel I I also received. Um so to me, that was just that was an amazing discovery to to see uh, that Paul is basically giving us in in First uh, Corinthians fifteen three and four a summary outline of this portion of Isaiah's fourth servant song. Now, as we start to go through the discussion points, you asked us to think about some uh, points in history, some people in history uh, who made and kept big promises and how we thought about them differently uh, after they accomplished those. Uh, you made three uh, in the sermon, uh, the Babe Ruth pointing out his home run, uh, Joe Namath and his Super Bowl win, and uh, John MacArthur and his return to the Philippines. Douglas MacArthur. <laughs> Sorry. And Douglas MacArthur. What did I say? John MacArthur. Oh, <laughs> John MacArthur, yes. not The general, not the preacher. Yes, okay. Sorry about that. Uh, Douglas MacArthur. Um, and two that came to mind for me, uh, one was a JFK's speech that we choose to go to the moon. Yeah. Now, that speech was made in 1962. Uh, Orville Wright had only been dead for 14 or so years. I mean, the first man to fly yeah. um, was was not that, that far in the tomb before we decided, hey, we're going to go to the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then George W. Bush, uh, his, his speech there at 9-11... Yeah. Uh, about those who had knocked down the buildings will soon hear us. Yeah, yeah. Both of those speeches rallied the country around an idea, brought us together for for a time being. Yeah, those are great examples of uh, of 
you know, I kind of my point was to say that it doesn't matter what you promise unless you make good on the promise. Uh, the glory goes to those who make good on what they promise, and the greater the promise, the more glory is deserved. And uh, and those are all good examples of people in history who made promises and and then fulfilled them. Um, and you know, kind of by that standard, then my point was that then doesn't Jesus deserve the greatest glory of all because because he made the, the greatest promise ever made, the promise of salvation, not just for the nation of Israel, but for all mankind. Um, and that promise is is detailed in the servant songs that we've covered these last five weeks of how God would work uh, through the life and the ministry of the Messiah and ultimately through his death and resurrection uh, to bring about salvation for us all. Um, and, and, you know, so Isaiah... Uh, makes that promise. God makes the promise through the prophet Isaiah, and Jesus makes good on that most amazing, highest stakes promise of all time. And uh, and certainly if we celebrate people like Douglas MacArthur and Babe Ruth and and uh, George W. Bush and, and John F. Kennedy for the promises they fulfilled, well, then Jesus deserves... Uh, way more credit than, than any of them because the promise he made and kept was the greatest promise ever made. And long-lasting, as you, you pointed in, in the sermon, that it wasn't just for a certain point in time that we still feel the effects yeah. of that promise being fulfilled. That's right. Your second question we kind of already discussed, so we can uh, move on to, to the third, mm -hmm. that uh, when Paul says Jesus did things in accordance with the Scriptures, He's most likely referencing Isaiah 53. And you ask the question, where in the passage does it talk about the Messiah dying for our sins? And and so to kind of, I think it, it, it's a semantics of the language. Mm -hmm. the, the language that that is used for Isaiah, Old Testament, we're looking for the word Messiah. Yeah. New Testament, we're in a different language. Yeah. The word we're using now is Christ. Right. They're the same word. Yeah, um, and 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 uh, Isaiah does say that. Yeah, yeah, and and it's you know not not only in the passage that we're looking at today, but even in the first six verses of the of the chapter, um, we all like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was despised and rejected, all of that, and then and then in in the passage for today, uh, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Uh, he he went like a lamb to the slaughter, didn't open his mouth. Um, he, he, he went along with this whole, these, these proceedings, even knowing it would lead to his death, uh, cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Um, uh, it makes his soul an offering for guilt, verse 10 says. So it's sprinkled throughout the entire passage, all these references to uh, this servant of the Lord uh, offering himself up. Uh, as a guilt offering, as a sin offering, uh, Christ died for our sins. Yeah. Now, during most of his ministry, he would have been called Jesus of Nazareth. Um, when in his ministry did Jesus start to publicly embrace this title of Christ? Because if he started out early, he would have known that there'd been a lot of resistance, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of speculation, and it, eventually it did get him killed. But even as late as uh, Matthew uh, six, uh, chapter 16, uh, after Peter makes that profession that you are the Christ, 
he strictly charges the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Yeah, so he he dodged the question, as you said, because he didn't want to force a premature confrontation with the, the religious authorities who, who would put him to death for for blasphemy, for claiming to be the Christ. And um, he seems to, to know that that's the thing that they're going to nail him with, literally. Um, so he, he chooses rather throughout most of his earthly ministry to refer to himself as the Son of Man, uh, which is also a messianic uh, uh, term coming out of the book of Daniel, if you rightly understand it. Nonetheless, it was uh, more vague, it was more open to interpretation, and he could fill it with meaning, if you will, as he went along. The Son of Man will do this, and the Son of Man will do that. Uh, and and so he could kind of d- define what it meant to be Messiah on his own terms until really it comes down to that final confrontation at his trial. Tell us, are you the Christ? And he responds, you say that I am. In other words, you wouldn't be wrong to say that. <laughs> and and then and then they go nuts, right? That's yeah. when that they tear their robes and they and they say, you've heard it for yourself. Uh, this blasphemer is claiming to be the Son of God, the Messiah. Um, what more evidence do we need to hear? And uh, and that's ultimately the charge that they bring before uh, Pilate, uh, the charge that makes him worthy of death. So he, he's very coy uh, with that messianic identification. You could argue <clears throat> that on Palm Sunday was his coming out party <laughs> as, as the Messiah, that he would let himself be presented to Israel in that fashion and have people shout Hosanna and blesses the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that's all messianic kind of language. The people are, are, are uh, acclaiming him as their king, as their Messiah, and he doesn't refuse it. And that's, that's really the beginning of the end for him because uh, that's, the, the chief priest can't abide uh, that going on. And uh, his allowing the, the crowds to, to, uh, draw, to, to acclaim him king and Messiah that way. So it's really a, you know, that final week is, is where he really kind of lays it on the line and said, yep, uh, that's who I've been all along. Uh, you're not wrong to conclude that or that I'm making that claim. And, and then, of course, he's put to death for it. As we move to the fourth point, it's about Messiah's burial. And as we kind of hinted already, how is this matching up with the actual burial of Jesus, that he would be executed? And crucifixion was a capital punishment. It wasn't something that anybody just got for a minor offense. This, this, he was killed between two thieves. So to the average passerby, they, they wouldn't know the difference. But, like you had mentioned in, in the sermon, that general practice was, they're criminals, they usually don't have money or family that worry about them, so they go into a mass grave. But that wasn't the case for Jesus, that his burial was with the rich. Now, I've never been to Jerusalem, but I can guess that there's not a lot of vacant or unused land. <laughs> yeah. And like here in the Garden State, any available land is going to be quite expensive, uh, especially if you're going to use it just to bury people. Yeah, if you go to Jerusalem today, you'll find massive cemeteries right outside the city walls, and and that's on purpose. It's it's uh, you know uh, you if the Messiah comes 
and this is the Jewish way of thinking. The Messiah comes, and he's going. There's going to be a resurrection. Then you want to be where the action is, right? On the resurrection day. So it's it's a valued and very treasured thing to be buried, uh, yeah, you know, in or near Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, apparently that was also something that was valued back in the day because Joseph is from Arimathea. He's not, he's not a local even. And he might be living in Jerusalem now, but uh, he, he is wealthy enough to afford a brand new tomb cut out of rock, um, you know, in, in this garden not too far from, from uh, Calvary, uh, Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. So yeah, I mean, it would take some some financial resources to pull that off. Well, also rich enough to be able to be given time to talk to Pilate. Yeah, not just anybody could walk in and make an appointment. Yeah, he he had to be able of certain of a certain status. Yeah. to gain entrance to that. Yeah, money talks. So uh, it's it's likely that he was known around Jerusalem as a person of, of enough importance that Pilate would make time for him to even entertain his request. Um, yeah, it's, it's really quite a, an amazing contrast. I mean, I wonder what people thought when, when Isaiah prophesied that 700 years before, he'll be numbered with, uh, you know, transgressors. Uh, uh, he'll be buried. How's it put it again? Yeah. Oh, they will make his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. That seems really contradictory. Yeah. Because earlier in the in the song, in, in the first six verses, it's, it talks about how he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was, he was, you know, regarded as cursed by God. And yet Isaiah says, eh, he's going to be buried with a rich man. <laughs> that's, that's like, what? Yeah. Uh, and, he, and even, as you mentioned, when Jesus was crucified, yeah, you didn't you didn't fuss with the bodies of crucified people. You just tossed them in a, in a mass grave, common grave, um, and that was it. Uh, and, and yet, the intervention of Joseph Arimathea, probably unknowing that he was helping to fulfill prophecy, going to Pilate asking for the body and putting Jesus in this in this new tomb in a clean linen shroud. It says that's pretty remarkable stuff. I mean, some might hypothesize that, that Joseph knew it, it would only be used temporarily. You know, if he was truly a learned man, he, he would have known. But that's that's going way beyond putting thoughts into people's heads yeah. that probably weren't there. Yeah, yeah. To say that Joseph let them use the tomb because he knew that Jesus wasn't going to be there long is uh, pretty fanciful, in my opinion. Because think about the disciples themselves. They were shocked at the news of the resurrection three days later, and Jesus had flat out told them that he was going to come back from the dead, and they weren't even expecting it. So I doubt that Joseph expected it. I thought, I, I would believe that Joseph would have thought that, that he was giving that tomb to Jesus for the long haul. Uh, and then Jesus surprised everybody. Because most tombs, those were family burials, that when it talks about buried with their fathers, that yeah. That that was oftentimes that's the case, yeah. Yeah, so this was this was really um, a gift for his family. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Your fifth point was uh, where do we get the idea that from the passage Messiah would rise from from the dead, and why is that important? 
besides the importance of fulfilling that prophecy and, and why we're all here, the importance is there, like you said in verse 10, mm-hmm. that the servant would see his offspring and that that he would, his days would be prolonged and that the, the will the will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. And, and even in that, that saying, it's the will of the Lord for this to happen. That's, mm-hmm. That is the key to, to all of what he did was this is what God wanted. Yeah, it was, didn't take God by surprise. Uh, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Uh, well, to what end? Well, to the end that an offering be made for our sin. Uh, and to the end that upon rising, uh, he's going to, as, as verse 11 says, by his knowledge, or probably better translation, by knowledge of him, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. So, so it's even pointing to really the book of Romans and, and the whole idea of he was buried for our, he, he died for our sins and was raised for our justification. That in his coming alive from the dead, um, he, he has conquered sin and death. He's able to offer not only eternal life, to those who trust in him, but to to uh, reckon them as righteous, uh, having paid for their sins, he reckons them righteous, so that our sins are put to his account, his righteousness is put to our account, and and really that the core of the teaching of of the book of Romans is right here, in verse eleven. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness uh, righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It's second. Corinthians 5.21, uh, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so the, the very core of, of the, the great exchange that is the gospel that you find in the New Testament is right here in Isaiah 53.11. The final question from the discussion was about making that big promise. But glory goes only to those who make good on what was promised. And the, the question you ask us is, why does Jesus deserve the greatest glory of all? And we've, we've talked about that. And, and no matter how you're counting, there, there are so many prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, not just here Isaiah, uh, starting in, in Genesis 3. Uh, all these promises, and, and it was God that made those promises, those prophecies, that this was... God's plan, Jesus was not plan B for mankind. He was the the plan. And so it's the greatest glory goes to him because he fulfilled all those things and he will fulfill everything that is still yet to be promised. Yeah, so I I made reference at the end of the sermon to John 11:25 where Jesus standing outside the tomb of Lazarus uh comforts Mary and Martha by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Well, you know, Jesus hadn't come back to life yet at that point. He hadn't yet gone to the cross. And yet he's saying that if you believe in me um, and you die, you're going to live again. You're going to be raised to to life. Uh, You know what? Uh, the fact that he then went ahead and died and rose again kind of makes that promise a little more credible, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so that's that's the hope that we have as believers. It's it's the fact that the the one who who 
was promised to come and die and rise again, be buried and rise again, has not only was that promise made, but the promise was kept. And for all who believe in him, he promises that he will raise them to new life uh, in, in the resurrection. And that's a pretty beautiful thing to hold on to, um, is, is to know that, look, if Jesus made good on all those other promises, we can take this one to the bank. Yeah. All right. Next week, we move into the book of Jude. Yeah. Very short letter. And um, it, it will be a four-week sermon series. And so what should we expect from the book of Jude? Well, Pastor Ken has given the title uh, to this series, uh, Let's Get Ready to Rumble, <laughs> which is kind of a cool way of thinking about the book of Jude because it really is about uh, spiritual warfare. It's about doing battle with false teachers and doing battle with um, spiritual forces that uh, are aligned against us and the resource we have in Christ to uh, withstand the enemy and uh, walk in his victory. So, uh, yeah, be sure to join us. It's going to be a, a short series, but a good one. And then after that, we're moving into the two books written to Timothy. Yep, First and Second Timothy. Okay. All right. Well, and that'll take us through the fall. So we we have a, a really good idea of where we're going for the next several months. And uh, we thank you all for your time this week. Thank you, Pastor Dave, for being with us. And uh, have a blessed week. <laughs>